Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. afternoon. The way we've uh, structured our schedule is uh, I'll speak now for an hour and then we'll have time to just contemplate uh, the sutta that we're going to explore and then tonight at seven o'clock we'll have time to talk together, ask questions and so on. And at that time, I'll also deal with uh, the 700 notes that were left for me uh, today in the box. We're going to set the record. Uh, some of you who are new to this practice, I want to welcome you uh, to this uh, inner space of what it's like to actually look at your mind and also to this interpersonal space which is uh, what it's like to practice with other people in uh, pop-up community which is what uh, every community is because every community is changing all the time so we just relate to community as a sand, you know, as a beach um, and just to feel what it's like uh, to be held in this space. Uh, the sky is the perfect mood for this retreat. The leaves are turning into soil in the perfect way. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, being in this beautiful forest in Wisconsin that uh, we could have anxiety <laughs> or doubt ourselves or be upset with other people. <coughs> uh, but nevertheless, we are. <laughs> and uh, that's what shows up on retreat. And those of you who have a lot of experience sitting still, uh, it's also good to remember that some people who are new to a retreat like this, the whole thing can be very confusing. Which is, how come when I sit, I'm not calm? How come I judge everybody so much? And what's with the bowing? <laughs> um, and uh, then you realize, I hope, uh, that's exactly why we bow. Because uh, we have such gratitude for all of, these, uh, all of this material coming up. And we have uh, so much appreciation for a cushion <laughs> that we can sit on. And my challenge to all of you is uh, to wear out your cushion and then mail it to me <laughs> so, so I can see your worn out uh, cushion. You know clothing stores do this sometimes, like to show how sturdy their product is. You know, they'll put their boots in a window, you know, a pair that are really worn. We should do that with our meditation cushions, you know. We should Instagram a meditation cushion with two worn out sits bone marks. <laughs> If you're looking for a, a new a logo for your sangha, that's what it should be, like a worn-out cushion. And also we bow because uh, it's really important that um, 
you're also uh, bowing to each other as a form of gratitude and appreciation for each other's practice. Uh, it's the fact that somebody has put 20 years into sitting on their cushion right beside you uh, that helps you get through the weekend because you can feel their practice. And that's also what community is about, is being really inspired by other people um, who are uh, able and interested in uh, being awake. It's not every day we're around people who are interested in being awake. <laughs> so we're going to study a teaching <coughs> called Fear and Dread from the Middle-Length Discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, in this uh, sutta, sut sutta is the Pali for sutra in Sanskrit. Um, so in this sutta, um, a Brahmin named Janusoni comes to ask the Buddha uh, if his students uh, have faith in him. That's how the conversation started. Do your students have faith in you? He's saying to the Buddha. Now, uh, Janusoni is an interesting character. We know he's a Brahmin, so he's upper class. Um, uh, in every instance, he's always described, because he shows up throughout the Pali canon, always described wearing white. Uh, he has a white chariot. He has white horses, a white turban, white robes. Um, and um, he has a kind of sincerity in the questions that he asks the Buddha. They all seem to have something to do with either hell realms, reincarnation, or ethics. And usually some kind of combination. So one could guess that you have this upper class student of the Buddha who's kind of trying to figure out, like, how does one live as a Brahmin? And how do you take action that's skillful and beneficial and isn't going to cause you to go to hell, basically? And of course, some of you might know, in Buddhism, there isn't like a hell like we have in, uh, uh, in, in Christianity as like a place. It's rather a realm that one, uh, of many realms that one experiences and that changes. And I think we all know this because today you've probably had a few minutes where you were in a hell realm. Was anybody here in a hell realm today? Yeah. Or sometime this week, maybe, in a hell realm. Yeah. And then the conversation moves from whether the Buddha's students have confidence in him to what it's like, what it was like for the Buddha to meditate in the wild uh, jungle habitat all alone, which we can read literally, because this is something the Buddha did and many yogis do, and also um, as a metaphor psychologically for what it's like to enter the terrain of the wilderness. In other words, uh, sometimes we have an idea that it's great to let go of our stories and to get calm, only to discover that uh, when you do that, uh, you might meet versions of yourself um, that, are, uh, that have been left in the wild for a long time. <laughs> and uh, the Buddha talks about uh, being terrified, and then slowly how he began to realize that he had resources in himself for meeting uh, fear and terror and dread. And the Buddha then describes the practices that he undertook in these remote, uh, solitary retreats. And uh, I think reading them is really helpful and instructive for all of us. I told you last night about um, Alara Kamala, who was the Buddha's uh, primary teacher uh, before his awakening who taught him about meditating on the sphere of nothingness. Not to be confused with uh, emptiness, but really just going blank. Which I would say in contemporary language would also have something to do with uh, 
being dissociated. And that's something you can pull off in meditation. Have you noticed this? You can kind of like go into this gray zone where you're not really here. And you can feel it because you lose touch with your body. And you don't really exist. You know? And there's something kind of blissy about it sometimes. Um, except uh, when the session's over, you don't really know where you were. And I think for beginner meditators, it's kind of cool. Because like, it's a break, actually, from your uh, neurotic uh, preoccupations. Anyways, the Buddha really explored those different spheres. And then ultimately, he felt unsatisfied. Because uh, he felt that it didn't really uh, penetrate the core issue he had, which is how the fact of um, uh, impermanence and aging and illness and ultimately uh, losing other people and ultimately your own death um, uh, creates the conditions for suffering. And how is that? And, and, and how does one meet that? And how does one transform uh, their relationship to suffering? He felt that just going into these spheres of, it's like Olymp the Olympics of meditation. Um, were a dead end, that particular version. So then he found a, a new teacher named Uddhaka, who had a realization because he had studied with his father, Rama. And Rama taught about the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Not so much as a practice, but as a doctrine. So he taught these doctrines to the Buddha. And ultimately, we know that the Buddha wasn't satisfied either. He felt that this also didn't help him confront uh, suffering. And, you know, in some ways, this is all of our story, isn't it? <laughs> We've all had our experiences of trying to dissociate. Has everybody tried this? Yeah. Um, and we've also had the experience of uh, uh, reading books and studying and uh, joining cults and <laughs> or whatever you've tried to try and learn a belief system that will help you um, figure it all out, quote unquote. And then one day you decide, like the Buddha did, uh, maybe I just need to actually stop and sit still. But the problem with stopping is fear arises because uh, if you're no longer sitting still to try and get something, right? See, before we were sitting still because we wanted to like get blissy, you know, or like get like into a state where we didn't exist anymore. You know? Get out of our bodies, basically. But once you give that up, there can be some fear around sitting. Um, because uh, you might be scared of losing your mind. You might be scared of uh, confronting um, anxieties that you've distracted yourself from for a long time. You might be scared about uh, death. This seems natural for every meditator it's to kind of confront this truth that our lives are uh, impermanent. And now I've been coming here long enough that uh, if we keep going like this, <laughs> then we're going to start losing people. Right? There's a very good chance that next year it's going to start. <laughs> I'll say to An Andrea, like, how come so-and-so is not here? She'll be like, they died right after the retreat. <laughs> Got sick two days later. Another fear that often comes up for people is a, a fear of a loss of desire. This is a fear I think a lot of people don't uh, acknowledge, but the fear that they're going to lose both being desired and having desire. And a really good example of this is the story of Miles Davis. If anybody here knows his biography, one day he woke up and there was no music. He had no desire anymore for playing, and there was no music for him anymore. 
Maybe that manifests sometimes as the fear of being irrelevant or losing one's creativity. But there can be some fear around a loss of desire. Fear of being disappointed. Fear of losing what you've accumulated, what you've gained, not just materially, but also like um, in your persona. Mm -hmm. Another fear I think that comes up for people is um, uh, the fear of getting what you love. Remember when you wanted someone to love you? And then they did. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's such a great project to want someone to love you, you know. And then one day they turn around and they love you. And then you, what do you, you have no idea what to do with that. It's so problematic. So there are helpful fears, I think we all know, and really unhelpful fears. Um, I grew up in the city, uh, right downtown. And so I don't have a lot of fear around walking in alleys and being out at night and so on. And um, uh, now I live in a forest and there's no light and it's really dark. And so I used to not believe so much in spirits. <laughs> now I really believe in ghosts. You know. Uh, so one of the things I try and do is sometimes at night just like walk further away from my house <laughs> and just like get used to what that feels like to go into the forest at night. It's kind of a peculiar, peculiar fear because uh, on the island where I live uh, there are no bears, they were gone in the 80s, uh, there are no uh, mountain lions, Basically, there's nothing that can harm a human being except a human being. And there aren't that many human beings. I know most of them. <laughs> I don't think they would harm me. And yet, there's this real intense fear you know, of the dark. And, and those kind of fears are helpful, right? It's helpful to have certain kinds of fear. Um, and then there's fears that are habits that we learn because of scary experiences that we have. One of the things that I'm really scared of is uh, fainting and seizures. I had a period, Andrea knows this, where I witnessed quite a few people fainting. And it really freaked me out. And it got so bad that I had a period of time where it, one time I was teaching a retreat and I had so much fear around fainting that I couldn't eat the meals in the room with anybody because I was scared whenever someone moved quickly while they were eating that they were going to fall over and that they were going to faint. So we all have these kind of uh, fears that come from uh, trauma or that are, you wouldn't say it's healthy or unhealthy, it's just uh, a kind of sanskara, you know, that's developed that we need to turn towards. Um, I had this experience too recently of feeling scared and not being able to acknowledge it. Does anybody have these, these uh, worries? We were, we were living overseas and um, this fall, and uh, um, my my son, who's four years old, um, he has the symptoms of autism. He has a diagnosis of autism, and so he's very very sensitive to light and uh, a lot of sound. And uh, we were living in Greece, and it was very windy, and so like he was just overwhelmed all the time. So you think, oh, being in Greece on a beach, it's like the perfect thing. But actually for him, it was like really, really intense. And um, so for my wife, it was really overwhelming all the time because um, uh, she was just like managing 
especially when I'd go away on weekends sometimes to teach, he was just managing like how overwhelmed he was all the time. So then uh, one day I put my son in the car seat in this minivan that we rented. And uh, because of the way the strap went through the seat, uh, I was backing up and turning the car and then his seat fell over <laughs> on its side. But uh, I didn't hear it. So then I just went driving. And I'm driving and driving. And, and then I look in the mirror, because I always have the mirror in the car set to see my son. So I look in the mirror and he wasn't there. <laughs> so I hit the brakes and then I turned around over my shoulder and he wasn't there. And I thought, holy shit, I left him at the, maybe he fell out of the door. I really couldn't understand. I remember putting him in the car and I thought right away, my immediate thought was he had fallen out of the door, down a mountain cliff in a corner, you know. So anyways, I stopped the car, I quickly got out and he had fallen over, like on the side, and he was, so he was sitting in his car seat, like on the side like this. And so I just pulled the car seat back up. But he didn't uh, cry, and he didn't make a peep, and he didn't like, like communicate that he was upset. And it really scared me. I thought, did he have a, um, a seizure? Did he get knocked out? Like, how come he didn't share with me that he was uh, scared or anything? And then I tried to ask him, like, how was that for you, whatever, and he, like, had no uh, words or no communication. So then I was really scared about this. I was really worried about this. But then when I got home, I, I couldn't tell my wife. Because I thought, oh, God, we're in Greece. We're on this island, it's already so much. It's been two months now, we haven't like been able to see a doctor or get like the support we need for him. My wife's really eager to get home. <laughs> and so I don't want to add to it and tell her about, you know, the fact that this happened. Because she'd be really scared also, I don't need to add to that. But like, I'm not good with secrets. I'm like the kind of person where if I buy her a gift, I can't wait to her birthday. I just come home and give her the gift. You know, she hates that. She's like, just get me a card, okay? And just wait for my birthday. <laughs> and um, so anyways, I, I was really scared about my son. I had a lot of fear about like what's going on for him. I can't understand what's happening for him. Um, it's so weird to be a parent of someone you're so close to and then like not have the ability sometimes to communicate. And then on top of that, not being able to, to share this experience with, it was all very complicated. Eventually I told her and then she was freaked out the rest of it. <laughs> sure. Some uh, spiritual practitioners have a misguided idea that they shouldn't feel fear and that somehow they should overcome fear, like you shouldn't feel fear in your day-to-day -day life. And that being fearful is a shortcoming, or being worried is a shortcoming, or being anxious is a shortcoming. In Pali, there's a form of fear called otapa, which the Buddha calls the guardian of the world. It's a beautiful way of describing this particular fear. And it refers to <clears throat> the fear of causing harm. And the Buddha thought this was one of the most important characteristics in a person, was the fear they have of causing harm to other people or to the environment. And one more thing before we jump into the Sutta, this is all a prelude actually, studying the Sutta, is just one particular form of fear and worry that arises is anxiety. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning 
anxiety when we're talking about fear because they manifest in the body in a really similar way. A lot of people say, I feel anxiety. You heard this sentence? But uh, anxiety is not an emotion. Anxiety tends to be what we feel when we've restricted our emotions. Anxiety is what we feel when there isn't a free-flowing movement of uh, emotion. And that's why it's so physical. That's why it's so physical. Because when there isn't a free-flowing of emotion, the body gets very rigid. Our muscles get rigid, our breathing gets rigid, and then we get nervous. And the thing about the nervous behavior that we call anxiety is um, we ruminate, we obsess, we have uh, rituals, compulsive rituals that we design. But they're all characters, characteristic of something that we don't do, right? Like, it, there's like avoidance in those situations. And people who have high anxiety tend to be avoidant <laughs> of doing new things because they overestimate the risk. And then they feel that their breathing is restricted, frozen <laughs> diaphragm, tension in their shoulders. Do you know what I'm talking about? Tension in the digestive system. And then something I hear a lot is that then when anxiety becomes chronic over time, people describe themselves as feeling trapped in their bodies. So, our practice is to get interested in our bodies and in the body of fear and in the body of anxiety. And that might seem so peculiar to hear. Can't you just take a pill and make it go away? Well, you can actually. <laughs> you can take pills and you can make anxiety decrease and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have really intense levels of anxiety that you can't get interested in your experience, then it's okay to take, um, I don't know what you call it in the States. What are the anxiety pills you take here? Xanax. Xanax. Ritalin. Do Ritalin here? Zoloft. Ativan. Do you have Ativan? Marijuana does not necessarily reduce anxiety. Some people have the opposite. So that we're asking, like, how can I use meditative practice to get interested in fear and interested in anxiety, interested in dread? There is a psychoanalyst named Adam Phillips and he has a really interesting comment. He says, from a psychoanalytic perspective, it's the patient's need for the symptom. Despite their paradoxical invitation to the analyst to help them get rid of it, that radically revises any conventional notions of cure. After all, what would they be thinking about if they weren't worrying? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So it's like there's this weird sense where we're actually attached to our fear because what would we be doing if we didn't have that? And this is especially true for those of you who are like chronic worriers like me. I'm a chronic worrier. I love worrying. But we start to see that we're really attached to our worry because 
What would we do if we didn't have our worry? We'd have nothing to do. It's like people who are retired. And then they just die. Because there's nothing to do. They're like, what am I going to do? I'll just die. <laughs> Is that a bad joke? Yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> On one occasion, the Buddha was living in Savati, in Jeddah's Grove, in Anathapindika's Park. Uh, that was a, a wealthy landowner who gave, he met the Buddha and was so touched by the Buddha's teaching that he donated a really large parcel of land and said, here, teach, teach here. <coughs> I don't think he ever really studied with the Buddha. He just like really wanted the Buddha to be able to go teach. The Brahmin, Janusoni, went to the Buddha, exchanged greetings with him. They talked for a little while. Amiable talk to me always is just like gossip. They gossiped a little bit, you know. And then sat down to one side and said, for people who are practicing in your community and have left their communities to be in your community, um, do they have you as their leader, their helper, and their guide? And do they follow your example? And the Buddha says, uh, yes to all those things. What makes me their leader is they follow my uh, example. So I find this a really interesting teaching. The whole thing could end right there. Which is, um, they don't follow a doctrine. <laughs> they haven't had to go through something to be part of the community. They just are part of the community because they're following the Buddha's example. That's it. They didn't have to make a donation. They didn't have to shave their heads even. Nothing. They're just there to follow... Uh, the example of, of the teacher. But, Gotama, remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure, seclusion is hard to practice, and it's hard to enjoy solitude. Most of us like solitude for a little while, and then we would agree we don't enjoy solitude, most of us. Some of you are like, that's all I want right now, it's some <laughs> solitude. One would think that the jungles must rob a monk of his mind if he has no concentration. So, if you aren't able to concentrate on the meditation anchor, the breath, then trying to stay practicing in a secluded environment would rob you of your concentration. Would you agree with this? It would, it would be taxing. And he says, yeah, that's so, Brahman, that's so. Um, one needs some concentration. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only unenlightened, I considered that these kind of remote jungles would be really hard to practice in if I didn't have any concentration. That's true. Then he says, whenever recluses or Brahmins, unpurified in bodily... So now he's about to start teaching. So I'll paraphrase a little bit. When somebody goes into the jungle, into the forest, to practice, and they have done things with their body that are unwholesome, Okay, so unwholesome sounds a little bit like a troubling word for those of you who come from like puritanical traditions. Unwholesome just means with clinging. Wholesome means without clinging. And normally I wouldn't use the term, but I actually really like the term. So I'm going to try and reclaim wholesome and unwholesome because I think it's helpful to see the whole and to not see the whole. To not see the whole, to be unwholesome, is when you're clinging. Mm -hmm. When you're clinging, you can't see the whole. Mm -hmm. And when you've done unwholesome things with your body, it's going to haunt you when you go into the forest. Mm -hmm. 
Now let's turn the forest here into a metaphor for your internal landscape, okay? If you turn inwards, there are meditation techniques where you can avoid, and that's why I told you about Alara Kamala, the Buddha's earlier teachers, because there are schools of meditation, like transcendental meditation or other forms of meditation, where the purpose is to go above or go beyond. Where your ethics and how you relate to people, they don't really matter. Like you're just trying to get a certain altered state of consciousness, right? Trying to get the Kundalini going. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're just trying to feel a certain way. But then what we do is we sit still and we do what I call brown rice practice. So plain and mundane and boring, right? Like who wants brown rice, right? But that's what we do. We do brown rice practice where we follow our breathing. And if you do this practice and you turn inward and you start following your breath, then the things you've done with your body will show up as a shadow in your practice. And it's a really good thing. If you've hurt people, if you've done things that damage the dignity of other people, if you have a job where you exploit people, or you're hurting the environment, as you start to calm down, you'll start feeling the weight of that. And that's what the Buddha is saying. Who feels terror in the forest? Somebody who has bod regular bodily conduct that's unwholesome. And that's a really good thing. Is this making sense so far? We're going to talk about, I'm going to ask you questions about this tonight. Then he just adds one more piece to that. And the same is true if someone has unwholesome verbal conduct. If you speak to, to people in a way that's hurtful, then when you start getting quiet, you'll start to feel the effect of that because you'll start to reflect on your actions and on the consequences. And maybe it just starts with seeing the symptoms of not speaking kindly, which is like a train wreck of broken relationships. Have you ever had this experience where you have a breakup and it was exactly the same as the last breakup? which was exactly the same as the breakup before that? Or have all of you married to like your high school person? <laughs> Over in Wisconsin, of course you are, I forgot. Okay, there's this thing in other states <laughs> where like people date different people um, <laughs> in their lifetime. We do that in Canada. <laughs> And, um, and then you start to see, oh wow, you know, I have these relationships that kind of have ended in a similar way and that the pattern of communication broke down in a similar way or my part in it was similar. And then you kind of feel the weight of that. And I think this is a really powerful teaching. It's saying like, what you do with your body and what you do with speech has an effect. It has a consequence. It's called karma. And the consequence lives in your body. And when you sit still, you'll feel the consequence in your body. And if you think that that's getting in the way of your meditation practice, you have, I think, a misguided view of meditation. It's actually precisely because you're tortured in your meditation practice that your meditation practice is working. Because it's saying, like your body is just yelling at you, basically. <laughs> saying like, please pay attention to your life. 
And then the Buddha says, and the same thing is true, if somebody goes into the jungle and they have a pattern of lust, of lusting, which I'm sure you don't have either <laughs> around here. But there's this thing called lust. Have you ever felt this? And most people, when they feel lustful, especially because we're exposed to so many Hollywood uh, films, um, we just think it's the greatest feeling. But every meditator, uh, after a while, starts to know that lust isn't such a great mental state. And the reason why it's not such a great state is that even though it has a lot of uh, vibration and there's a lot of vitality in lust and your body feels really alive, um, it owns you. And if you have a regular practice of stillness, you'll see how lust is compulsive and it owns you. And it's very anxious. Not anxious in the way I was talking about anxiety earlier. But. So it'd be much better to have desire without so much lust, which is the do you know that part of desire? Like digging in. So we should have a clarity rather than lust. Passion with clarity. It's Italian meditation. Passion with clarity. And then the Buddha says, I don't have a mind of ill will either. I have a mind of love and kindness. But if I had a mind of ill will, a mind, ill will is hatred, right? Anger. If I had a mind of ill will, it would be really hard to sit in a forest and be secluded. If I had sloth and torpor, it would be hard to sit in a forest. If I was restless, it would be hard to sit in a forest. If I had a lot of doubt, if I had self-praise or disparaged others. That's a good one. Hey? It tends to be the same person. Self-praise while disparaging others. If I was subject to alarm, if I was desirous of gain, honor, and renown, if I was lazy, unmindful, or unconcentrated with different straying mind states, then I wouldn't be able to sit in the forest secluded. Now this word secluded shows up a lot in the Buddha's teaching. And it shows up a lot when the Buddha talks about concentration. He talks about being concentrated or absorbed as being secluded from the hindrances. You see? Being secluded from the hindrances. Then the Buddha says that there are these very auspicious nights, the 14th, the 15th, and the 18th of the fortnight. So that's obviously uh, the full moon, the new moon, the quarter moon. And one of the things uh, that we know about that time, and I'm gonna say this time also, is that on the full moon, there's crazy spirits. And when it's all dark, there are intimidating demonic spirits. And there are certain times of the month where we're not ourselves. Doesn't matter what gender you are. So, in other words, 
there are a special, so there's kind of like a normal, like a default, where there's just what's arising, we need to work with it, but the Buddha is acknowledging that there are some times of the month, whether it's internal or external or both, where there are more ghosts that are intimidating, that are frightening, and that can cause you to experience fear and dread. So now the Buddha's created this large list of all the ways that we experience fear. And it's interesting how this list goes from bodily conduct all the way to the fact of spirits at certain times of the month. Isn't this true? Does anybody here experience this when there's a full moon? Yeah. Does anybody here notice this when it's really dark? It's harder to see. So now the last part that I'm going to read for today. While I walked, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither stood nor sat nor lay down till I subdued the fear and dread. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor sat nor lay down till I subdued the fear and dread. While I sat, you following the logic here? In other words, when it was time for sitting, I sat and I didn't get up, even though I was scared. And when it was time for walking, I walked. And when I was scared, I kept walking and I didn't change the pattern. And when it was time to lie down, I lay down and meditated and was mindful and I didn't get up. So that's our practice. That's what we're doing. When you sit, this is why it's so great sitting with other people, in case some of you are like, can't deal with all the people. But one of the things about sitting with other people is we have all this support here. So that when you sit, you don't move until the bell rings. And if you feel so much anxiety arising, maybe if you were at home, you'd get up. I have been through periods in my practice of encountering so much fear that I was scared to transition from sitting to standing. You know when the bell rings and it's time to turn around? I was scared to get up. And then scared to go from standing to walking. So the Buddha is saying, put your mind right in this moment. And harmonize your breathing with your fear and with your dread. Because your fear and your dread and your worry and your anxiety are all future-oriented. And your body is always in the present. And our life goes so much better when our mind and body are lined up. So much better when our mind and body are lined up. When our heart and our actions are lined up. That lining up is called yoga, in case you didn't know. I'm going to encourage you, uh, when you're here on retreat, to stay with your breathing. No matter what's happening, so you stay with your breathing. And when you stay with your breathing, you start to train yourself how to just see what's arising as impermanent and as not self. 
There's so much power in being able to see what's really going on and experience it and feel it in your body. And the way that I teach and the way that I practice, not always the way I learned, but the way I teach and the way I practice is that we're always doing this with our body. So that the awareness is always embodied. So when you feel fear, so this, this is how, let me tell you, let me describe how I learned. I learned it this way. You follow your breathing, and let's say fear arises, okay? You leave your breath, and then you go look at fear, and you just watch it. Because if fear is so strong that you can't focus on your breathing, you just watch it. Or like if pain in your body is so strong, you leave your breath, you just notice the pain. And you open your awareness, so pain's just there. I do something a little bit different, which is, my suggestion to people is, you never leave the breath. So you stay with your breathing body, and you notice the fear and what it feels like as you're breathing. You don't let go of the breath. Do you understand the difference? So it's like you're breathing fear, so it's like a pure fear. When I was in Greece, I uh, spent a lot of time listening to a record uh, by a guy who lives around here. The band is called Bon Iver. Mm -hmm. Do you guys do you guys know? I don't. What's his name? I don't know. His Justin. Name. Justin. Yeah. yeah. And um, at the end of the record, there's this beautiful song called "One in a Million. And the last line of the, it's a song about worry. And the last line in the song is, um, it'll harm me, it harms me, it harms me, I'll let it in. I love this line. It'll harm me, it harms me, it harms me, I'll let it in. Isn't this how fear works? It scares me, it'll scare me. I'll let it in. How do you let something in? With your breathing. We call this titration. This ability to like know that something's overwhelming and use your breath to slowly let it in. And then, a few minutes later, you're just thinking about dinner. But if you can't get into your body with it, then you, you keep compartmentalizing it, and the fear and anxiety increase, and then they stay around much, 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 much longer. And it's so exhausting. So exhausting. So the last thing I'll say is that we live in a culture of fear. <laughs> and um, uh, it is a bodhisattva activity to be able to uh, learn how to be in your own fear and not act it out by blaming other people through racism, sexism, Islamophobia, all of the ways where we take our fear and we project it onto other people. And um, the same is true with anxiety. We live in a really anxious time. So it's a great thing for you to train in how to manage your anxiety. Because even though you might, you might not realize this, but like it's exhausting for people around you. It really is. Because when you're anxious, you don't really notice that there's people around you. Because <laughs> like, all you're is concerned about is like 
how bad you feel in your body all the time. You know? But actually, like, it's so exhausting for everyone around you. So please practice while you're here for the benefit of like your roommates and your children and your colleagues. Your colleagues are so happy you're not at work <laughs> during this retreat. <laughs> and I make it sound easy because I'm up here just talking about it. But it's really hard when you're on your cushion and you're scared. And just be willing to meet that fear with your breathing. And sometimes you might not perceive it that way, but this is a pretty great community and a pretty safe space. I said this the first time I was here, but one of the things I love about this retreat center is it's like nice, but it's not gorgeous. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of retreat centers are like really fancy, you know? So it's really distracting. Cause you're like, oh my God, I want to live in a place like this, you know? I don't feel that here. <laughs> and the food's good, but it's not like amazing. Right? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not so distracting. It's just like, oh, okay, eat the food. But if it was like gourmet, gourmet food, we would have notes in the box saying, could I get the recipe to the, you know, sweet potato fries with the miso gravy? But there were no notes about the lemon. Um, so we can be appreciative, but it's not lustful. So this is a really good environment. Where I live, the trees are like enormous. If you walked in the forest where I live, you'd just be like, the mosses, are, this is crazy. I'm on drugs. You know? <laughs> and here, it's just beautiful. But you're not going to like, you know, go kiss the birch trees. Maybe now you are. <laughs> you're just perfect the way you are, despite what Michael said. <laughs> so uh, keep up your practice. Stay with your breathing. Don't do anything that makes you leave your body. And um, we'll have some time now for some contemplation. You can sit, you can lie down, rest. Then we'll have dinner. And then tonight at 7, uh, we'll have an hour, an hour to uh, explore this, ask questions, and so on. I also encourage you, like, read this, get to know it. Um, when I... Uh, used to study texts like in retreat environments. One of the things we used to have to do is memorize them. It's part of our practice on retreat. So uh, that's a fun thing to do. Like if, and all you do is you just, if there's a couple paragraphs here or a couple sentences that you're like, I need to hear that. And I'm not that into tattoos, so I'm not going to tattoo it. Or, you know, I don't have any room anymore. <laughs> then, <laughs> then you just... Um, Memorize it. So maybe that's something you also might want to consider is memorizing some sentences here. And then tomorrow we'll finish it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls. <laughs>